The game is rigged. That's something that people on the left have been saying for a decade, obviously a lot longer, but that particular phrase really goes back to the mid-2010s. And for a long time it felt like if you said it you were shouting into a void, nobody was listening. Fast forward to 2023 and virtually everyone in politics, on the left or the right, accepts that the game is rigged, that a tiny elite benefits while the rest of us lose from the status quo. The establishment does so well at the cost of everyone else, if you will. But even though there's agreement about the game being rigged, that doesn't mean there's agreement on what to do next. Clearly, people on the left and on the right have very different proposals going forward. And I think the reason why there is a gap between those two sides is basically because there's a different reading on what power is, who has it, and how things change. Now, for people on the left, financial and economic power is directly translated into political, social, and cultural power. It might be comforting to think we live in a meritocracy or that political representatives are there on merit and they represent the will of the people, but fundamentally, they're there to reflect vested, powerful economic interests. And that is exactly why we got Grace Blakely on for today's show. Grace is an economist. She's a writer. She also does loads of media stuff from Talk TV to the BBC and Jeremy Vine. She's a fantastic young economist and her interests have always focused on finance and the kinds of power which emerges from it. Grace, welcome to Downstream. Thank you so much for having me. I have been waiting for this conversation for so long. <laughs> I have missed you very, very much yeah. too. It's been a while. It's been a really long time. It's been we, a really long time. We haven't, I feel like I haven't really seen you that much since COVID. Yeah, well, I mean, I went away. You went away? You've been writing a book? Yeah, I wrote a book. I went away to write a book, partly, although I didn't spend that much time writing my book. I spent a lot of time just wandering around Central America, surfing, um, making trouble. And yeah, I got back like two months ago. And now here I am, back in the melee. And you were obviously my first priority. Yeah. Number one call. Of Nav course. Navarro Media first. <laughs> exactly. The Today program second. <laughs> you're obviously very left wing. Obviously. Uh, obviously. So I've been told. Yeah, you're obviously very left wing <laughs> in terms of your economic commitments. Mm. But you're a well-spoken Oxford graduate from Basingstoke. Yeah. From the home counties. Um, what happened between you being a fresh-faced Oxford graduate who went on to work at KPMG and then having the kinds of political economic commitments you have now? Was it something you had as a, as a young person? Yeah. Did they intensify when you entered the labour market? Was there a moment of, of, of intellectual revelation? How does this trajectory look? I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. So it does kind of go back to when, it definitely goes back to when I was growing up because I'm obviously from like a, a posh, well-off background. Um, but my mum was, you know, grew up on a council estate in Basingstoke and her dad was a hardcore communist trade union organizer for the TGWU. Um, he was like, you know, going over to Russia. We had little busts of Lenin in the house. My uncles are called Carl and Keir, both with a K. Like, you know, properly into the whole... Um, you know, into leftism from a very young age. Um, and my mom kind of took those values definitely along with her. She had also like, she was the first in her family to go to university, went to Cambridge, had a terrible experience of Cambridge because everyone was like, you know, treated her terribly because they were all, she was like, I arrived, everyone was like, oh, what school did you go to? And she was like, I went to a comprehensive in Winklebury. And they were like, hmm, what? So kind of that, I think, consolidated her left-wing values. And my dad ended up just kind of, 
falling into that sort of sort of field as well. They ended up doing things like, you know, they traveled around the world and did the Nicaragua Solidarity Campaign and eventually ended up doing very boring kind of professional things. No offense, mom and dad, I love you. Uh, doing kind of boring professional executive coaching and that sort of stuff, but retained those like left-wing values and always raised me along those lines. I mean, if they hadn't, my granddad was still there all the time and he would have been like, what are you doing? Like, what are you talking about? Um, so I was always like really into politics. We had a very political household. I did things like, you know, I wrote for the New Statesman, right? Uh, that was something that I did like three or four years ago, um, maybe a bit more than that, five years ago. Um, and when I was like 14, I had a letter published in the New Statesman talking about like, I can't remember something to do with, you know, the transition from Brown to Blair and like what needed to be done. And that was like, my granddad had that framed and put on the wall. Aww. So there are all these like political values that there were in our household. Um, but I think the second thing was that I was always in trouble. So like I was like, you know, I went to all these fancy schools, but I was expelled from two of them, um, suspended like constantly, just was constantly in trouble like with everyone. And I mean, it was relatively easy to get into trouble if you go to private school. I'm not saying that I was like, you know, this tear away, but like I did some pretty crazy stuff. And like, I never really, never really kind of understood the boundaries of what I should and shouldn't do. Always kind of felt like, you know, rules are stupid. And that gave me that kind of rebellious spirit, I think that went with like the, the left-wing values. Um, but I was never like, I was always like, oh, I'm gonna, I don't know, go and like work for the UN or like, um, I don't know, maybe like be a politician or something that was fairly like middle of the road. It was only um, after I think, you know, I so I did this PPE degree at Oxford and it was very like, you know, I, I think I learned more in my African studies masters about like the way that the world actually works than I did in my PPE degree. So the PPE degree was very liberal, very down the line. Just for people um, watching, PPE is the is the degree that all the sort of opinion makers and yeah. politicians in the UK do, mm. know, from David Cameron to pretty much every major yeah, BBC yeah, yeah, broadcast exactly. journalist, Nick Robinson yeah. and whatnot. Politics, philosophy and economics. Yeah, yeah. it was created um, to educate the kind of the people who would be going on to govern the British Empire, basically. It's supposed to have everything that you need to be inculcated into the values of like the elite, basically, and all of the kind of reference points that you would need to be able to kind of converse with with those people. So it's, you know, not particularly, it's obviously not radical at all. It's like very mainstream middle of the road education. Um, and as I said, I wanted to kind of go work for the UN or doing something in the kind of international sphere, liberal do-goodery stuff. So I went to do an African studies degree. So you were a lib? Yeah, basically. Yeah, I would have said I was like a left lip. I was like, you know, like I want to like do things to change the system and make things work slightly better for, you know, those who don't come Did out. Did you have like top. a make poverty history? Oh, 100%. I was totally like into all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, that was like totally my identity. Um, yeah, did my African studies master's, realized how utterly screwed up that entire world is. So like I did a bunch of um, of research and like, you know, traveled quite a lot and met lots of people in the UN and in NGOs and whatever and realized how dark um, things really are there and quite how, you know, how p when you are in a job that is working to kind of pick up the pieces uh, from a system that is fundamentally messed up at like the very highest levels, it can only create kind of disillusionment. Um, so then I was like, right, okay, well, we need to change the system. I started thinking about politics. I initially was like, oh, I'm going to go organize for the Greens. And I did a little bit of that when I was uh, in my master's. Then the 2015 election came around 
And I think that was when a lot of stuff started changing for me. I remember like sitting in an Oxford college uh, when Ed Miliband lost. I hadn't even voted for Ed Miliband, I'd voted Green. And just being like, what is going on? Like, how can we be, how can this happen? Like, how can we be going down this road of just like more and more austerity when it's just so obviously wrong? And, you know, the, the whole ideology that it's built on is so obviously kind of corrupt. Um, and then... Corbynism happened. It was actually my boyfriend at the time who was like, oh, have you heard about this Corbyn guy? He'll be, he, he seems quite cool. Wow. So this um, guy is actually a, a pivotal figure in your, <laughs> yeah. in like your I career, personal, political yeah, 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 trajectory. Totally. Amazing. Who knows? Maybe it would have happened anyway, but he was like, you should look into this. I looked into it and then was like, this is amazing. Started going along to all the events um, and like, and getting much more involved in the Labour Party. And then that was kind of when I was like, right, okay, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to, get involved in this world, see, you know, how I can be useful. And that started by doing policy. Um, so after I'd left university, I had this stint at KPMG. Um, and yeah, that was working in their like management consulting arm, doing kind of public sector work. Uh, and what and was that? What was that like? It was interesting, right? Because like the projects I was working on at the time, um, it was in Greater Manchester and um, they were kind of doing like loss leading work. So the idea was that you would, you know, not make huge amount of profit. You would work with these new um, combined authorities and try and like develop a product, develop a product that you would sell elsewhere. So at the time it felt quite interesting. I was like learning a lot about, it was all to do with service delivery. So it was, you know, like um, everything, you know, there was a lot of work on like people with complex needs and combined dependency and how people who interacted with lots of different services, like, you know, children's services, social care, the criminal justice system, all these different sorts of things, like how you needed early intervention to kind of deal with those those sorts of issues. And obviously it was all couched in the language of like how you could save money. But me coming into this as like completely green, I was like, wow, this is fascinating. Like this is how things actually work. Eventually I kind of realized, oh no, we are literally developing a product that we are going to be selling to to other combined authorities as a way of making money. And it just kind of started feeling more and more alienating. Also, I wasn't very good at it. I was good at the research, like all the kind of looking into like what works and how we should be designing these things, but I wasn't very good at selling and I wasn't very good at client interactions or any of that sort of stuff. Um, I don't really know why, probably for the same reasons I kept getting expelled. But anyway, I then left, um, decided I wanted to go do think tanky work so I could go into policy, maybe from their politics, started IPR, had a great time. That was when, you know, I met you guys and um, started, yeah, like doing more media, doing more writing, like getting much more involved in like actual organizing. And it was just kind of like, you know, all uphill with a lot of downs as well <laughs> from there. Did you ever subscribe to Tatler? I never subscribed to Tatler, no. Never? You never have, no. you, have you ever read an issue of Tatler? I don't think so. I'm not saying that I've never read like a fancy magazine. I'm pretty sure I've read like Vogue or whatever, but I was never really that that into it. Cosmo. Horse, horse and yeah. Hound? No. I'm not that posh. Uh, but are there, I'm like are there middle any, class. Are there, are there well, any, I'm like upper middle class. <laughs> are there any people in your sort of, you know, your ambit, like your, your parents, friends? Oh, I mean, at Oxford, yeah. I met some of the like poshest people that you could imagine at Oxford. Like just unimaginable amounts of not just like wealth, but also 
privilege yeah. and um you know when i went to oxford i was like because you know i went to these private schools but ended up going to sixth form college like you know obviously had friends who went to state school that sort of stuff i was like oh yeah i'm really posh and then i went to oxford and i was like oh my god i am like a commoner to you're these commoner, people yeah, yeah. yeah like <laughs> they're all being like where did you like where did you go to school um eton cheltenham ladies dulwich like all they all knew each other that was like this massive group of people but even all some know each other. even some of the people that go to those schools of you yeah, as yeah, common yeah, because exactly. they didn't know their family was the first and their family or whatever. It is amazing. It's crazy. I remember once I was reading something in the FT. It, this was it was just or maybe it was, no, it was the Telegraph, in fact, and it was like a it was like a, an etiquette guide yeah. for Christmas, and you shouldn't cheers and tap glasses, and the author of the article said that was LBC, little bit common. <laughs> So you shouldn't, like, especially with yeah. champagne glass, you shouldn't tap, right? What you should do is when you say cheers, you should lift the glass and go, cheers. Yeah. And then, and then, but the idea of like touching is just like very vulgar. That's hilarious. And I'm like, these people live in a different world. Oh my God, like, so true. I once heard someone say um, at Oxford, I think they were discussing like, I think someone got a new boyfriend and they were asking lots of questions. And one of the responses was, oh, don't worry, darling, he's PLU, which was people like us. <laughs> very, very concerning. Yeah. I mean, it's it's weird. Like, it was funny because I spoke to my mum about this, about the same experience that she'd had. She actually came overtly from like a really working class background going to Cambridge and just found the whole experience so utterly alienating that it was like outside of her comprehension. Whereas for me, I was kind of like, oh no, I see where I fit in in this hierarchy. And I'm like here. And then there's all these people who know each other who are like here. And there's this like, I mean, I remember at the time reading um, all of these like novels, like, you know, um, like Fitzgerald and Evelyn Waugh and stuff about like class systems in, in the US and the UK and being like, oh my God, I suddenly understand this. This like from the outside looking in at this world of like glitz and glamour and everyone seems so like um, put together and very aware about how to play with power, like in friendship groups and like, you know, in the world more generally. And it's really like, um, it really hooks you. It's really interesting to notice that happen. Um, so yeah, I definitely kind of, you know, experienced that when I was at Oxford, but never kind of, never really fully inside, never really fully outside, I guess. Do you think the left struggles to explain that? Like, I, I feel for much of the public, you know, I, I say I'm middle class because I like John Lewis and drink M&S gold brand tea. <laughs> and I think most of the public was, I, I, you know, I joke with my wife and I say, you know, if the waitrose near us closes, we're moving. <laughs> right. And I, I say it mockingly. And I, but I view those as like benchmarks of middle yeah. class, like the nice things. But I think for most of the public, that's the case. They, 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 they can't comprehend there is this quite big layer of people who culturally, economically, socially, just in every mm. single aspect of their lives, they inhabit a different thought world. Yeah. And do you think the left has failed to communicate that a bit? I, the way I think about this, um, and this is actually potentially going to be something I'm going to be writing about in the future, is that, you know, we we think of ourselves as living in this society, right, that is characterized by, you know, winners and losers. And we debate the boundaries of that game and how, you know, the winners should be taxed and how the losers should be supported. Um, and everyone has a sense of where they sit in that game, you know, whether or not they're like doing well, whether or not they're successful, attractive, whatever. And we're all kind of competing on with one another to, to succeed. And we have a view as to who's above us and who's below us. But there's actually a, a set of people who are outside of the game altogether because they're basically the ones that make the rules. 
Um, and they are neither winners nor losers. They are in a very real sense, kind of much more in control of actually the game itself and how it works. And a lot of our um, educational and cultural systems, a lot of the, the educational and cultural systems that these people come through are designed to make them comfortable with the idea that they are the ones that are in control and that set the rules. Um, so you'll often hear, and I have heard this from, from these people, this idea that they are the kind of, you know, def by default, the benevolent rulers yeah. of society, whether that is just because they are genetically better or it's just because they happen to have been, you know, enculturated into this, uh, this particular way of being that allows them to be the kind of guardians of society. They do see society as divided into between people who kind of make the rules and those who just play the game. Um, and I think that's probably something that maybe most people have an in like some sort of intuitive sense of. Um, you know, the idea that we can, you know, vote different people into power, but nothing's ever going to change. Um, but I, I don't really think it's something that we talk about overtly. And I don't want it to sound kind of conspiratorial because I'm not saying that like, you know, we live in a world that's kind of governed by a few people sitting in a room deciding who gets what. But obviously, um, the institutions in which we, that, that kind of govern most of the interactions that structure our lives, whether that's kind of corporations or political institutions, public services, educational institutions, there are people in positions of power and authority. And as our society has become more concentrated, as larger institutions have come to govern much greater areas of social life, the people in positions of authority within those powerful institutions have gained more control over what happens for everyone else. So we're talking about power. Let's get into the nuts and bolts. Sure. And this is a talking point which the left hasn't really focused on. I feel like we've left a lot of it to the right. Mm. Um, and often, you know, there's this thing which is, oh, if something's right-coded, then the left has to think and say and do the opposite. I love that because it's always really fun, like, going on TV and people will be like, right, we've brought you on to have this perspective on this subject. Yeah. And you come in and you're like, well, actually, the entire way that you've structured this dichotomy is yeah. completely wrong. They short-circuit, <laughs> don't they? Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about ESG. Mm -hmm. uh, ESG, for those who don't know, stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. Uh, it's meant to represent a standard for investors to monitor how socially conscious a business is. For some, that has made it a kind of a wokeness scorecard for yeah. investors. You know, ESG is like, uh, yeah, the woke top trumps for, <laughs> for various companies. What's your read on ESG? Maybe we should actually, maybe it'd be helpful to kind of go back to that, um, that kind of trichotomy I set up a second ago, which was like winners and losers and people who make the rules. I think um, left and right often divide themselves based on different ideas about how we should treat winners and losers, right? So, you know, the, the right wing view sh would be like, we live in a free market society and the only thing that should matter is which company makes the most profit. So we shouldn't be forcing them con to consider things like environmental, social governance objectives, whatever. The market decides who wins. Whereas those on the left would say, well, that's fine, but actually the market kind of doesn't account for all the, the different factors that we do want to account for. We need to change the rules a bit to make sure that, you know, if you win, um, you don't do it at the expense of other people. Or if you lose, then you're not kind of just uh, left to starve or die or whatever. Um, so we need to make the game, you know, played a, a slightly different way. Um, and, you know, that's basically the difference, I suppose, between kind of neoliberalism and more progressive liberalism. Um, the thing I think that socialists should come in and say, or that maybe we don't often, we don't always do this, um, is actually to point out that the entire game is being played based on rules that have been, you know, developed by someone else and in which 
you know, working people are always going to be designed to lose. So ESG, the right will say, no, you want competitive markets. This makes markets less competitive. The left would say it helps us to deal with, you know, negative externalities that actually make society more progressive. And Marxists would come in and look at this and say, well, this is a way of shoring up the legitimacy of a capitalist system that is fundamentally not based on free markets. It's actually based on the governance of society and control over society by huge corporations that are able to exploit their workers and wreck the planet without any, um, really, any kind of pushback from the state whatsoever, because the state itself is also largely influenced by those corporate interests. So ESG comes in as this kind of auto-critique by the people who govern the system as a way of saying, look, we know what we're doing and we're responsible and you can trust us to be able to look after this system in your interests. But there is absolutely no way that we will cede any of that control to you. We will look after the system maybe in a more enlightened way. We will consider some of the things you're talking about, but you're not ever going to be able to actually be in the rooms where we make the rules. And I think that's like what should differentiate a Marxist and a socialist from a progressive liberal or, you know, whatever. It's actually saying we don't just want to make the system a bit fairer. We want to give people power. Mm. Just on ESG as well, it's a, it's a huge money-making opportunity. So BlackRock's ESG Aware Fund charges fees five times higher than its core S&P 500 fund. And ESG investment funds have 43% higher fees than conventional investment funds. So they make more money. These We'll talk about the kinds of companies involved in this. They make more money around these products. And like you say, it also fulfills a really important political role. But it also means there's, there's tremendous power that's now being concentrated amongst the financial elite. Mm. And like you say, before that was a concentration of economic and political power based upon the idea that greed is good. You know, mm. Gordon Gordon Gecko is the kind of main character archetype of the 1980s. That was what our society was. It does feel like in the last, well, particularly since the global financial crisis, as, as Anglophone elites are trying to resurrect political legitimacy, consent, mm. they're having to change that archetype a bit more to caring, enlightened capitalists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, do you think they've been compelled to do that? Uh, is it just them trying to exploit an opportunity uh, from, you know, do-gooding liberals who, who would like them to be like that? What, what, where's it coming from? Yeah. Because it, it does get that criticism from the right as well. And, and they would say, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with the, the point behind it, but it's coherent, which is, well, look, Private enterprise is designed to first look after customers, mm. secondly look after shareholders, thirdly look after workers. Forget the rest of this crap. Yeah. So, so where has it come from, and why has it become so prominent in the last, say, ten years? So, to understand where it comes from, you know, I think we need to look. I, we've been talking kind of, or I've been talking kind of, quite abstractly in terms of structures and like you know, um, and uh, and classes and that sort of thing. We need to think about how. The people in positions of power, you know, who have the capacity to kind of make decisions that will affect everyone else, what they're thinking about when, you know, developing and implementing things like ESG. Now, it is obviously very clear to anyone with eyes that capitalism has, at least since the global financial crisis, if not really since 1980s, been suffering from both a crisis of kind of legitimacy and um, and really kind of a crisis which is pitting capitalism against democracy on the one hand, and also um, a crisis of, of kind of, of reproduction of, of accumulation, basically, um, in which um, it is becoming harder and harder to produce the stuff that we rely on um, to survive and that, you know, capitalism rely, relies on for, for constant growth, either because of, you know, 
climate imperatives or because of uh, collapse in productivity or because of, you know, escalating inequality, all these sorts of reasons that, that play into the kind of long term productivity crisis that we've had and the associated financial breakdowns that that have come alongside that. So there's this kind of legitimacy crisis and a, a kind of, uh, you know, a crisis of, of the reproduction of capitalist um, productive relations and social relations. Um, and if you are a member of, you know, the ruling class, let's say you are, I don't know, Larry Fink, and you're the head of BlackRock, one of the world's largest asset managers. Um, and you are as you know, the head of one of the world's largest asset managers have a portfolio. Well, you don't have a portfolio, you will have a portfolio yourself, but you govern a company that has lots of portfolios that invests in asset classes across the whole economy that has a stake in pretty much every, you know, large firm in say the S&P 500, um, just by virtue of the fact that you're so big, you have to be that diversified. And it is almost all of them, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, you're thinking, right, well, if my business is going to continue to grow, I need not just, not the kind of, you know, um, the dynamics that you might want if you're a hedge fund, which is lots of, uh, you know, massive up and down, ups and downs, lots of crises that can be exploited to, um, you know, make use of arbitrage strategies and uh, make clever, quick trades that are going to make you money in the short term. You want really kind of long-term stable growth. You want corporations to grow. You want corporate profits to grow. And you want people to be able to accumulate savings that they can invest in your your assets. And, and more generally speaking, you know, you want a society that is characterized by relative stability. And that is true across a whole range of industries. It's true across, you know, the political class in general, who, if you were to look at it from a kind of Marxist perspective, would see their role as um, not just like maintaining individual capitalist enterprises, but actually maintaining the broad conditions that allow capitalist social relations, capitalist reproductive relations to, to reproduce themselves, um, then, yeah, you know, you are going to be worried about things like climate breakdown, because that threatens you on all of those levels. It threatens the legitimacy of the system, because people are going to get scared, people are going to die. It threatens the, um, the relations of production. It threatens, um, you know, the relationships between different social classes. I mean, if you look at the, the global economy and the way in which, uh, climate breakdown is likely to affect different parts of it, we're going to see breakdowns in global supply chains of the kind that we saw during the pandemic much more frequently. Um, and, um, it threatens the kind of very foundations of accumulation just because like, it's going to be harder to get things out of the ground and like, um, create the crops that people need to survive and all those different sorts of things. So, so that's one argument, which is that ESG is about like a long-term rational self-interest on, on the behalf of the capitalist class. But the companies with the best ESG scores in America, and I find this fascinating, mm. and it's right now it's a right-wing talking point, but on this they're correct. The companies with the best ESG scores in America are Google, Microsoft, and the Bank of America. Meanwhile, Tesla, which produces literally you know, electric vehicles, and you might agree, I disagree obviously with their labor standards, and we need to have a conversation about using recycled lithium mm. for EVs, but whatever. EVs are clearly better, we want more public transport. EVs are clearly better than the cars that people were producing, you know, 20 years ago and, and for, for the century preceding that. And the idea that Bank of America has a much better ESG score than Tesla. Yeah. And that's a right-wing talking point, and I'm just like, yeah, but that they're kind of right. Even if you don't like Tesla, Tesla has accelerated the adoption of electric vehicles by 10, 15, maybe 20 years. And it's really it's really accelerated the process for, for Detroit, car manufacturers all around the world, China. So like the idea that that somehow gets like middling ESG scores, I think it's quite fair to say something's 
not quite right here. It's, well, not, yeah. it's not just about the rational self-interest thing, you know? Well, I think there's two things, again, going on, which is the, the, the rationale behind it and the rationale behind any climate policy that a government will implement will come from this, we need to protect capitalism, yeah. basically. And, you know, it's kind of the Keynesian idea. Jeff Mann wrote that book that was like, you know, the Keynesian philosophy is basically like protecting capitalism means protecting civilization. And there is an argument, you know, that these people will view themselves as these enlightened um, you know, platonic rulers whose job it is to basically make sure that they have this view over society as a whole and can put in place the the like the conditions that give rise to the the continuation of, of capitalism itself. But, and this is the 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 interesting thing, this is where things actually get interesting. If you're looking at, say, the state as um a set of institutions or, you know, a, a mechanism of organizing power, um, it is not staffed by enlightened technocrats or platonic rulers who can just make policy based on what they consider to be the interests of society as a whole. They say it is. You know, you ask a politician why they're doing what they're doing. They say they govern in the general interest. This was Ralph Miliband's famous critique of the capitalist state and the way that the Labour Party got sucked into it. It was because there's this idea of state elites as governing the general interest, which is very hypnotic. It's like, yes, of course, we'll give these people power because they're doing what's good for the rest of us. But actually, the state isn't that. Um, it's, um, you know, broadly speaking, as we think of capital, it's a social relation uh, in the sense that what goes on within the state and the way that state power is exercised reflects social struggles that take place within society as a whole. That's kind of abstract, but you know, you can broadly think of it as like battles that are taking place within state institutions, whether that's in, within, you know, the treasury or you know, any government department. Um, the players in that battle will be linked to wider groups um, that will have support from uh, different, you know, corporate uh, institutions historically unions um think tanks basically different groups that are that make up constellations of class interests that structure all capitalist societies and they will influence state policy not just in a way that is uh, is meant to kind of protect the interests of their, of their class as a whole, but in a way that is meant to protect and promote specific interests. So like, look at uh, like Biden's climate policies, for example. He comes in and says, we need to save the planet for all these very good reasons. He's backed by capitalists like Larry Fink who say, yes, actually, we do need to save the planet for the sake of capital. And yet, because of the power of these different groups, these different specific interests, as opposed to the, the general interests of capital as a whole, you end up getting this hodgepodge of climate policies, which actively undermine each other in some senses. Even though the narrative is we're doing something about climate change, everyone can see that ExxonMobil still has a huge amount of power, can still see that, you know, all these, like, these banks that are funding climate change still have a huge amount of power. And so you have this weird, like, um, not only like the weird fact of policies that go against each other, but the weird show of politicians saying, we're doing something in your interest when it's very clear that they're actually acting on behalf of a very specific interest. Yeah, I think it, and it leads to really messy policy, yeah. which neither the left nor the right can really understand. So a really good recent example is this recent house building announcement by Michael Gove. What does it look like? Well, they're saying that legislative changes, which result really from an EU diktat, of course, in 2017 have led to fewer housing starts and completions. First of all, that's not true. We completed more houses in 2018 and 2016, but park that for a moment. The solution, therefore, is to basically allow people building homes to um, to have those homes put more crap into local waterways. That's yeah. fine. You know, it's you know, called sediment, but they basically mean effluent and, and garbage and rubbish that we flush down our toilets. Now, okay, you would think that's bad if you care about 
clean waterways, you might think it's good if you think, well, actually, no, building houses are more important. But here's where it gets really interesting, because it isn't just a regulatory change. They like to say, we're not going to take a step back and we're, we're cutting red tape. No, £700 million of taxpayer money is being spent. How? Hundreds of millions of pounds are being given to house builders by the taxpayer, by the state. Mm. Hundreds of millions of pounds are being given to private water companies. Apparently, they're private. They pay dividends to their shareholders. And yet, the taxpayer is having to pay for, for stuff here. So what we're doing is we're paying £700 million to allow some people to stop polluting, some people to start polluting, and apparently, it's so we can build more homes. And you think, hold on, couldn't we just use the £700 million to build, <laughs> yeah. to build the homes? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's just this like, and it's really messy, chaotic, and, and like screwed up. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of the political debate right now. It's, it's why the left and the right struggle to get a handle on anything. And it's why everybody says, look, nobody could administer anything. And I think like you say, it's because you have these competing interests com and also competing ideas, which because they're not governed in a, in a coherent, structured way, which they were, let's say, until 2008, or if you're being really, you know, skeptical, you know, maybe the 1990s, it's just a mess. Well, I mean, I think this is the point, right? Because we've been stuck in politics for such a long time in this sterile debate between left progressives or liberal progressives and neoliberals or right-wingers. Um, and the debate is basically like, the state needs to do stuff on the left. You know, the state needs to do stuff. We need to protect people from the market. The free market is fine, but it needs to have some regulation over it. And the right saying the free market is good. State intervention leads to corruption. Um, you know, we need to get rid of like, you know, nanny state and, and bureaucrats and all these different sorts of things. And we have the same debate that we've been having for a hundred years and no one's any the wiser. And of course, that's because we've lost what should be the socialist or Marxist critique of all this, which is that we don't live in free markets. Not only are the markets that, you know, do exist under capitalism not free, but most of our lives are structured by decisions that are made by big corporations, financial institutions, states, politicians who are insulated from democratic accountability precisely because they're in the pockets of, of big businesses. And what is really missing there is just an understanding of the way that power actually works. We have these big ideological debates and the people who do PPE like to have about freedom versus competition versus, you know, protection. And actually none of that matters when it's just the brute fact of power that is being exercised by people who are in positions of authority over everyone else who basically like live in a game that has been designed so that they lose. No wonder you get people, you know, going for these kind of conspiracy theories, which are like, uh, you know, the, the world is being run in this one room by like the World Economic Forum. It's like, that isn't true. You can understand why they think that. For sure. Because there is this like fairly coherent um, network of institutions and actors that govern those institutions that whenever a crisis happens do seem to get together in a room and say, right, this bank gets bailed out, that one gets to collapse. In the pandemic, this company gets a bailout, that one gets to gets to collapse. And at the same time, you're being told, oh, we live in a free market. And if you go out and work really hard and compete in that market and do really well, then you'll come out on top. But also if the company that has been exploiting you for 10 years gets you know, extremely over-indebted and needs a bailout, we'll give them one. Oh, but if you get extremely over-indebted and need a bailout, then you're out on the street. Like, of course, it sounds like the system is rigged. You're told you live in a free market system. And actually you live in this you know it's like the iron fist of uh of the powerful versus like the the invisible hand of adam smith yeah this was really brought home to me the other day i was watching gb news with darren grimes <laughs> my regular saturday viewing and uh, i was watching because i was about to go on actually and i was preceded by a guy called john rental who's this sort of new labor you know the russian soviets had a great word for this 
ideologist. Yeah. <laughs> Not an ideologue, an ideologist. <laughs> I love and PPE, PPE, the job of PPE, by the way, is to train ideologists yes, totally. um, of, of market capital. Um, and he was on there. And Darren Grimes, and this is what worries me because Darren Grimes is talking more sense than John Rental. <laughs> Darren Grimes says, well, look, there's this massive difference right now between savings rates and um, and things like mortgage rates or, or credit card debt. Yeah. So the, the base rate of interest is 5.25% at the moment. We all know it's been going up for 18 months. What's the base rate of interest? It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the rate of interest at which the Bank of England gives money to private banks. Obviously, they have to make profits because they're private enterprises. So they have rates slightly higher. Right now, their savings rates, I think the average is about 2.6, 2.7%. The average mortgage is almost 6%, 5.7, So there's this huge difference, right? So they're basically skimming profits. They're charging far more than they should be with regards to, you know, if you want to take out debt from them, but if you're depositing savings, they're not really giving you enough. So yeah. it's clearly unfair. Darren Grimes said that in his own way. Yeah. And John Rental goes, no, no. And he said, should politicians be doing anything about this? And by the way, Jeremy Hunt called this a problem. Yeah. Jeremy Hunt. <laughs> And John Rental, this Blairite ideologist, says, oh, there's no problem with this. The, you know, it's the free market. We shouldn't be getting involved. Oh, bless him. It's the free market. That's so stupid. It's so stupid. Like, like the UK financial system is so far from a free market. It's been like accused of oligopolistic behavior in like loads of reports going back like years. And he, but he's, it's the free market. So first of all, first of all, first of all, we're talking about monetary policy. It's that set by the Bank yeah. of England. It's set by like a bunch of people yeah, in a room. Yeah. There's no invisible hand. They arbitrarily yeah, 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 yeah. determine what it is. The first well, I mean, they would say, this is the interesting because historically they would say, oh, they are just setting the current interest rate to align with the long-term natural rate yeah. of interest, which is set by the market. And actually QE and the policies surrounding that have kind of done away even with that idea. So it's now become obvious that actually central banks just set interest rates. There's no natural long-term rate of interest. But then Darren Grimes says something really interesting. He says, but hold on, you're saying it's the free market. We bailed out the banks in 2009. Yeah. That wasn't the free market. And I'm thinking, oh God, he's got it. <laughs> and John Rental goes, no, 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 no. That wasn't, we made money from that. It wasn't a bailout. Of course it was a bailout. Yeah. No one would fucking exist anymore if we hadn't used taxpayer money yeah. to guarantee their liabilities. They would. They were insolvent. And, you know, I, that's where I get, to, and I, we're talking, we, we, and it's really important to disaggregate, let's say, progressive liberalism from the left. Mm. What John Rental was presenting there is progressive liberalism, yeah. and it makes no fucking sense. Yeah. And the right take from Darren Grimes makes immeasurably more sense. And that's where, as you say, people like yourself come in with, with something a little bit different. Well, I mean, this is the point, right? Because there's two ways of responding to that. Once you kind of <laughs> once you peek past the veil of, of capitalist ideology, once you take, what is it, the red pill or the blue pill? Are you supposed to take? I can't remember. What is it they say they've black been red pill? Oh, I just know black pill is the really bad one. Okay, whatever. Once you take the pill that lets you see how everything works. Um, there's two ways of dealing with that, right? Um, the, the way that I think most people learn to deal with that is by um, just being forced to deal with this deep sense of powerlessness, right? You peek past the curtain, you see that there are basically structures in place that mean that even though you're told from when you are very, very young, if you just work hard and do well, your life will be good, actually you are playing in a game that has been designed so that you lose. And you come, at, come out of that with, with a disillusionment, with anger, with a sense of, you know, righteous indignation, basically, which lends itself to the right. And it lends itself to that kind of fascist ideology, that kind of, you know, this is a bit nerdy, but like the Nietzschean ressentiment that feeds fascist movements. Google that. <laughs> yeah. Pause, Google that. <laughs> um, which basically says like, okay, well, I'm in this system 
the powerful control it. I can't touch the powerful. I'm just an individual. So all I can do is elbow all these people around me out the way with this knowledge that I have about how the system works in order to get myself on top. Um, and a step further than that, actually, which you're seeing in some really right-wing movements in Europe particularly, is just burn the whole thing down. Yeah, It's like climate change is coming. Um, immigrants are coming. The end of the world is coming, basically. Like, let the whole thing burn. Let the elites burn. Let the system come crashing down. And let's just build this little island for the worthy, for, you know, the, the, the way we consider our group to be able to stay alive on. Um, and that is where we're going, because that's the way that individualism responds to that realization of, of, of powerlessness, basically. The other way is the way that we would have historically is that you would organize as part of a movement of other people who share your interests to change the system. And actually not even just to change the system, but to bring down the system as it is. And in the process of bringing down that system, not just allowing everything to crash to the ground, but constructing new institutions in the process of revolution, really, that are based on different values that are based on community, that are based on, you know, collective struggle, that are based on social solidarity and support, um, and that allow you to survive whilst challenging the interests of the powerful. Now, because we live in such a brainwashed individualistic society, it's basically impossible for people to imagine what that would look like. Like if you ask someone, how are you going to, you know, like react against injustice, they'll say, oh, I'll buy a tote bag or like I'll tweet something. Like there's no sense of how you might get involved in a collective project to actually challenge the structures of, of, of the system as a whole. And that's the legacy of neoliberalism and individual individualism. That was the very aim of like Thatcherism was to destroy our sense of, of social solidarity. So I think for the left, the biggest challenge is yes, firstly exposing the fact that the system is rigged, but I think most people know that the system is rigged, right? Like this is basically what my forthcoming book is about. It's about all the ways in which the system is rigged. What's it called? It's called Vulture Capitalism. Oh. Vulture Capitalism, Corporate Crimes, Backdoor Bailouts, and the Death of Freedom. Um, so, the Death of Freedom? Yes. Well, that's going to really go down one of the worst. <laughs> I know. I can, I, see, know. <laughs> I can see Tucker Carlson saying, the death of freedom. Interesting. By a Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of what that, that book is about. It's basically about all the ways the system is rigged and, and uh, the beginnings of kind of how we could think about building something new. But I think the real challenge is actually speaking to this nihilistic, individualistic, conspiratorial, yeah. um, like resentful response to that realization with a politics of hope rather than basically like a politics of death. <laughs> so true. Like, I think one of the, I thought in the second half of the 2010s, it was a huge win for the left that, you know, we would, you know, we'd go on the radio waves and on TV, 2017 election, um, and we'd say, the system is rigged. Mm. And, you know, we were like, wow, so powerful Bernie kind of vibes. Yeah. And it was working, you know, Labour get increased their vote by 10%. You yeah. think there is momentum here towards a different kind of politics. And I remember talking to Jake Berry, who's a, a Tory MP, and he talked about, you know, what was the, the line they had for Theresa May? Um, strong and steady. Strong and stable. Strong and stable. Yeah. And then I said, she's, she's not a strong woman. I said, she's strong against the weak and she's weak against the strong. Ooh, you exploit you exploit yeah. the weak and you get on your knees in front of the powerful. Yeah. So that ain't strength, my friend. And he was like, he was like oh, God. you know, sort yeah. of inverting that little thing. Anyway, so we thought that was like a moment where we were really cutting through with it. And like you say, that's now the common sense of ev everyone. Everyone says the system is rigged. It's only like these 5% of like libs, by the way, who are all in the media. <laughs> yeah. And like, they're the only ones who don't say the system's rigged. Yeah. Every, everybody, everybody <laughs> says the system is absolute. They might not be, you know, angry, but they might be saying yeah. like, look, for now I'm doing okay. You yeah. know, I'm managing, which is many people, right? 
I'm not saying they're all ready for revolution. This is the, like, everything was fine before Brexit or everything was fine yeah. before whatever. Yeah. Like, if we could just go back to normal, sensible politics, I don't want to have to think about politics anymore. Yeah. I'm politically homeless, that sort of thing. Yeah, the sort yeah. of, you know, your new balance, um, the rest is politics listener kind of person. <laughs> but what, what I mean, what I want to say is here that you're right. We thought in the, in the latter half of the 2010s that, like, wow, this is huge political progress for the left to say the system is mm. rigged, people are buying it. There's an elite, an avaricious elite who are screwing the rest of society. That is now the music coming yeah. from everywhere. That was also what Trump said, right? Yeah. Frankly, in many ways. And you're seeing it a lot, a lot with the right who have obviously a very different political message. And like you say, for me, you've got like the two archetypes here, which is like mid-20th century Nye Bevan. Mm. Okay, you you your 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 loved one or your sibling, they have tuberculosis or they have some, you know, horrendous disease, that's why we need a national health service, mm. right? Okay, well, something similar in the in the 2020s in the United States. Oh, you know, a family member can't afford insulin in the US. Mm. Who, who are they watching? Andrew Tate? Yeah. And he's saying, it's the matrix out to get you, yeah. the establishment's out to get you. But what's he saying is the answer. He's saying, get rich. Yeah. You know, screw lots of women, um, work out, you know, get good at fighting. And that's, and in the absence of alternatives, that's really alluring for lots of young men. Yeah. No, I totally see that because you're basically, you know, again, and this is the massive ideological success of neoliberalism more so than anything to do with convincing us that, you know, we live in free markets, is to convince us that we are individual competitors in this big old game. And that everyone has, broadly speaking, the same chances to win the game. Or if they don't, then they at least have the chance to better their lot in life if they just you know, work hard and get to know, know the rules of the game and exploit their competitive advantage against the people around them. Um, and that is the natural result of putting market ideology onto every area of social life because you come to look at yourself as like a commodity. So you're like, well, how can I win the game better? I need to, you know, understand the rules and the rules are hidden. So someone like Andrew Tate can show me what the rules are and then exactly. I need to get strong and powerful so I can beat everyone around me and then I'll be at the top. And maybe, you know, half the people are thinking, well, when I'm at the top, then I can do nice things for my family or like make the system better. Maybe they're thinking then I can take control. Maybe they're thinking then I can burn the whole thing down. But everything is structured on the idea that you need to get to the top. You need to win. You need to beat everyone around you. And only then can you start to think about social change, which is actually the absolute opposite of how any social change will happen. It is how you make yourself easy to control, basically, is by buying this ideology that you can be a winner in this system where there are other people who will set the rules and always shift the goalposts and where there will always be losers and where those losers will, largely speaking, always be the same people. And probably you are part of that group that will always be trapped in this constant struggle and that will never really escape. The only way out of that is to recognize that you are part of a group and that your interests are not in beating everyone else around you, which is ultimately impossible and you're never going to be able to do anyway. Your interests lie in kind of creating communities that can work together to firstly protect each other and support each other and then actually start to rebel against the people who are actually in charge. We're going to clip that, put it on TikTok, like si sig sigma, <laughs> sigma male music, the real Grace Blakely on the real Matrix. <laughs> it does sound like the Matrix, yeah, doesn't no, it? On the real Matrix. Yeah, yeah. Are liberals our people? Are they part of our movement? And I, I mentioned, you know, John Rental earlier on saying that, you know, the, the, you know, they leave the free market alone. And of course, the banks are doing nothing wrong. Yeah. And we bailed them out. It wasn't a bailout, blah, blah, blah. And the sort of the formulaic political strategy that you hear time yeah. after time after time is that the left needs needs him to do anything, <laughs> right? Yeah. 
he's one of our people, you know, the left and, and people, I don't even think he's liberal, but whatever, you know, the center, yeah. which is very few people numerically, but obviously has tremendous agenda setting power in society more generally. Are they part of our movement? Are they part of our coalition? Or does the inclusion of, of establishment liberals within our coalition actually foreclose the possibility of broader class-based politics? Um, you know, I, I, I've got this question here. Do, you know, do you think it's weird that the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation are viewed as somehow advancing progressive <laughs> causes? You know, I I, I, um, I saw that think tank recently. What's it called? More in common. Oh yeah, more in common. We've got more in common. And they wrote this uh, piece. They had this. They had this poll rather, and it showed that if Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, Labour he would only be Labour would be one point ahead of the Tories. Mm. And obviously, this was being raised shown. Yeah, people, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. But hold on. This is a poll brought to you by like the <laughs> Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation. Why do you think people funded by people like that would ask that question? Ask yourself. And and it's precisely those kinds of groups, the sort of liberal NGOs that we have been told. I believed it for a long time. I mean, you said earlier you, you wanted to work in that yeah, kind yeah. of world. They were part of our coalition. Do you think that's true or not? I think that there are two questions one of which relates to, do we need to build a coalition in which the average person who is maybe not that politically engaged, but probably falls somewhere around the inverted commas center of the political like spectrum needs to be involved? Yes. And then what we do with the hangover of Blairism and neoliberalism and, you know, years of of this kind of warped style of public debate that we have had, which is all of these people who think they're very important and in some ways are very important and don't like us. Um, and there are a number of different answers to that. And I think it varies from person to person. Broadly speaking, I think these people are rudderless and that's why they are coming out and saying all of these wild things. You know, they were thrust to power on the back of a movement that didn't threaten the status quo, but which still was kind of covered in this image of progressiveness and change and hope. Um, and they still see themselves in that sense. They see themselves as kind of, you know, vanguards of sensible, compassionate politics um, who are protecting the center ground against extremes on all sides, of course, without realizing that the very reason that the extremes have grown more powerful is precisely because they were in control. But that's, and you know, besides the point. Um, the question then is, I suppose, you know, how can they either be engaged or neutralized? And that rudderlessness is in some ways um, an asset because um, if we are able to kind of basically build our own movement, um, which we're still very much in the process of doing, that can provide the fulcrum around which political debate um, is organized, then they have to pick a side. We don't have that power at the moment. We don't have that agenda setting power at the moment. We are, as the left, as socialists, still in this kind of confused position with regards to like mainstream political debates. Like sometimes people like me are on TV, but most of the time the issues that we're talking about aren't the issues that we'd like to be talking about. We have a limited amount of power to actually shape the way that that process um, continues. And it is actually those centrists who are in these positions of authority who are able to kind of set set the terms of the debate. If we're going to be thinking about neutralizing or engaging those people in a positive way, basically we would need to have more power ourselves, right? And that is the challenge. I think if we're able to kind of build this project back out, 
fight back against the narratives that are being pushed by the far right, build institutions like Navarra that gain some level of agenda setting power. Those people then have to start talking about the things that we want them to talk about. And as soon as they're starting to talk about the things that we want them to talk about, they then have to pick a side and the sides are defined by us, right? Whereas at the moment we're going into their institutions and we are put into one of these two sides which are defined by them. This is why what I was saying at the beginning about how, you know, they'll bring me in and say, you're taking this side of the debate and then be shocked when I don't argue the line that they want they want me to argue. Um, so yeah, you know, I think to, as I say, co-opt or neutralize them, there has to be a position from which we can exert authority. And at the moment, we don't massively have that, although it is changing slightly. I think actually, you know, the slow implosion of mainstream media and the the growth of of um, online platforms and, and, you know, platforms like Navara, they are paying attention to that. Whenever I go into to mainstream media studios, there's all panic about like, how are they going to adapt to the digital age? And, you know, the BBC, I, I don't know if you saw that BBC feedback thing where it's like Radio 4 is losing listeners. What do we do? Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. So I think there is a sense of like, they know that they're kind of rudderless. They know that the questions they're asking don't really attach to conversations that are taking place in like society more generally, but they're still in control of the way that those debates happen. And that's not going to change until they aren't. So I don't really know if that answers the question. Grace just mentioned organizations like Navarra Media. Yes. And I want to take this opportunity to say that you can help us grow and you can help us change the political debate in this country and change politics by supporting our work. So if you go to navarramedia.com forward slash support, you can make a one-off payment. You can become a supporter. I think we have 12,000, 13,000 supporters these days. You know, I, I, I'm from Bournemouth. You could fill the Vitality Stadium and more with the people that support Navarra Media. That's great. Why don't you join them and go to navarramedia.com forward slash support and make a, a ideally a monthly payment or whatever you can. You know, our, our, our catchphrase back in the day used to be new media for different politics. And I was thinking about this recently. I didn't come up with it, so I can say this. It's brilliant, right? Okay. Because it's showing a problem and it's showing a solution and it's showing how to get there in one simple sentence. What's the problem? Politics. What's the instrument to improving it? Media. How do we get better media to inflect politics? Us. Yes. And obviously not just Navarra Media, Tribune, Jacobin, yeah. innumerable outlets out there. But I think you're right to say it's probably the lowest hanging fruit in terms of pushing politics this country left is taking on MSM. Yeah. And like it's, it's happening whether we like yeah, it or not. Yeah, yeah. That crumbling, it's about, you know, how is it going to fall? How are mm. the piece is going to land? So, like I say, if you want it to land in a good way, go to navarami.com forward slash support. I endorse this message. <laughs> I'm very I'm very glad you do. You know, you said earlier on you were at IPPR. Yeah. And I, I was doing some work with them. I remember. I, I good remember, times. I remember. And I remember, <laughs> I, we did a, I made a video with you. So some, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people might not know this, but I don't, I don't just write stuff. I'm also a very bad videographer. <laughs> no. Uh, I used to sort of dabble in it. And I made a video with you. Um, and I remember at the time you had like 5,000 followers on Twitter. And I was like, what is going on, Grace? <laughs> how, and now how many do you have? Like 180,000 or something. Great. Yeah. Still not good enough, but still. I just, I hate, I hate it. No, but you're such an eloquent voice. That's very and kind. you're so informative on, on finance stuff, which obviously is, you know, is quite hard to penetrate for most people. I think it's obscured intentionally. Of course. You know, yeah. they, they don't want it to be easy to understand yeah. for most people. And I think, you know, it's great you're finding an audience. Why, quickly, why do you hate Twitter? You said, don't you hate it? Really, like, you know, all of what I've been talking about so far has been to do with 
these ideologies that keep us subjected to control um, and that we reproduce inside our heads all the time, right? And so being on social media and having lots of followers and being on TV and being like successful and publishing books, it like, we are supposed to be, we are talking often to people who are losing out as a result of the systems that over which they have no control. And you are speaking from the perspective of someone who's winning as part of all of those systems. And I see this think, now- Do you see yourself as winning? Yeah, I think so. And I see this now, you know, like the 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 most kind of aggressively um, neoliberal, marketized way that you can look at this, you can look at like the value you have as a human being is to do online dating, right? Because- that is a market in a sense. You know, historically, you wouldn't have a market for for partners. You'd have a community. You'd meet X amount of people over the course of your life. You pick one, you, you know, you go with them. Now we have this hugely liquid market, which has got loads and loads of people in it. And the more liquid a market, the better the price mechanism works. So the better you're able to see, you know, based on the force of supply and demand, what your price, what your value is in the market. Um, and even though they don't tell you where exactly you sit in that hierarchy, you can tell by the number of matches you get or like, you know, the way people respond to you in that game. And if you are attractive, if you have lots of social media followers, people are obsessed with social media followers and fame and influence. And if you like have a good job and you're successful, then you have a high price in that market for human beings, for partners. Um, and I find myself in that position whilst also... And, you know, benefiting from that position whilst also really disliking the idea that it is possible to assign a price value to a person based on these metrics of success over which we have no control. And also having to accept that, like, according to all of those metrics of success over which we have no control, I'm winning because, like, I was born into a relatively well-off family in a rich country in a rich part of the world and went to Oxford and, like, played this game well. Um and it just is, I think basically it poisons you if you identify with it. Mm. It poisons you because you start thinking, I'm a winner. I've come out on top. I'm better in one way or another. And it's not even conscious half the time. It's kind of unavoidable. It's like the adoption of an attitude that you take towards what you're doing and the people who are around you. And if you can't take off that identity and like leave it at the door and be like, that's, something that has happened because of the screwed up way that our society exists and I have it and that's great and I'm going to try and use it the best way I can. But then say, I am just a person. I don't have a value that you can correlate with the number of social media followers I have or the number of matches I get on Ninja. I have, you know, friends that see me for who I am. I have like uh, hobbies and things that I do that have absolutely nothing to do with that stuff. I am not playing this game most of the time. I'm just being myself. Unless you can do that, you become, your brain melts. Quickly, what hobbies do you have? I really like surfing. Okay, so okay, that's too bad. <laughs> I wanted something more sort of like Warhammer or something. No. Um, no, and I the think, gym, uh, weightlifting. Yeah. I, I, I think there's, you know, I, I, you were saying about how producers expect you to have Formula X sort of because you're on the left, liberal values. And I, I actually have a major critique of dating apps. Like I, I yeah. genuinely think there's a huge downside to how we're socializing young people who've never known anything else. Yeah. So maybe people a bit younger yeah. than you. Um, and I think we need a proper conversation about it. Yeah. You know, and I, I've I'm got considering a, doing an article about this actually. You should, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, 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 and I've had this conversation many, many times. I go on TV and they expect you as the lefty, you know, oh, should mobile phones be banned in schools? And I go, of course they should. <laughs> we should have limits on social media for young people. What are you talking yeah. about? We're, we're, we're literally incentivizing addiction to fund 
to fund the world's largest, wealthiest companies. Of course we should. But like they don't view that as a left-wing position because they think, oh, the left-wing position on everything is let More everybody government. do everything that they want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, some government yeah, too. So like yeah. maybe, yeah, we should have, the, you know, the government should oversee like, uh, there should be like a, an inquiry. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, like, yeah. no, I, I think that there shouldn't really be, I fundamentally think kids below 11, 12 shouldn't have a smartphone mm. and they certainly shouldn't be allowed in schools. You know, it's interesting that Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs didn't let their children have smartphones for mm. precisely these reasons. But I, I think dating apps is a really similar thing where, you know, maybe it's my sort of, there's an authoritarian impulse there. Yeah. I am actually, I am really, and look, we'll find out in 20, 30 years time, right? It's like smoking. Yeah. In the, it's like smoking in the 1950s. What are the long-term impacts of this stuff? And I, I think there might be some really big ones. Actually. Oh yeah, totally. I think, yeah, unless you can actually, you know, learn to disaggregate yourself from these, all of these systems that surround our lives. And it's so prevalent now with the way that we use social media um, and with the way that the labor market is constructed based on, you know, the gig economy and like mini entrepreneurs and stuff. If you cannot like learn to take your identity out of these settings where you are being told that you as a person have a value based on the things that you do, then you will make yourself miserable and mentally ill. And even if you win, even if you're at the top, you're going to make yourself miserable. And especially if you lose. Mm. This is why I love having an Iranian dad. <laughs> why? Because he, well, maybe, maybe it's the same with your parents. He has no idea what I do. <laughs> no, my parents know what I do. They know. So uh, yeah. he goes, why do you go on TV? Like what, you have a YouTube channel? How the hell does that work? Don't you have to like, <laughs> don't you have to work in TV to go on TV? And I'm like, no, he's like, oh, Christ. He has no idea. He doesn't no, know, bless him. Yeah. He has no idea what Navarro is. Oh. He's like, you're, you're employed? I was like, yeah, there's about 25 of us. We have like a, a place in Leeds. We I love that. Some yeah. No, no, but it's really. Grounding. It's great. Yeah. Because sometimes my wife goes, oh, it's so impressive what you don't write. I was like, you know what? My dad literally hasn't got the first fucking clue. <laughs> yeah. It's really useful, like you say, like, yeah. so you don't get like, you don't believe the smoke that, you know, might be blown up your own ass. On the, um, on the liberal thing. Are yeah. they part of our coalition? So this was a this was an issue which I I thought was really key within that, which was the Farage debanking saga. Oh yeah. So this was really fun actually because I got to have the the, the only kind of different line, which was so obviously it was like he should have access to a bank account or, you know, he shouldn't because he's a bad person, liberals versus progressives, whatever. I was like, Farage says that we live in a free market capitalist economy. And in a free market capitalist economy, a private bank has every right to make decisions based on what it considers to be its interests and its profits. And therefore he should have no problem with a bank deciding whether or not to give him a bank account. I personally believe that firstly, we do not largely live in a free market economy. We live in an economy in which the heads of private institutions have an immense amount of power to make decisions without any democratic accountability whatsoever. That isn't very good. And that we should be moving towards an economy in which we have collective democratic public control over all of our institutions, including banks, so that everyone gets a bank account and we all collectively get to make the rules as to how those bank accounts are administered. And everyone was just like, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Although they just ignored me and kind of carried on talking around the issue. Well, he, I mean, it was interesting with him was he was saying, because for people watching this, oh, it's fake news. He didn't get, he didn't have, he wasn't given a business account where he was, which was Coots, which is a subsidiary of NetWest. And he wasn't offered a business account at a bunch of other banks. Mm. He was offered a regular, you know, current account, but presumably Nigel for a big shot, Nigel, you know, he probably wanted to use it in the US when he goes to support Trump later this year and whatnot. And that yeah. wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been sufficient. And um, 
he himself said, you know, until quite recently, we had post office and everybody had a right to get a post office ba- bank account. I'm thinking, what, you support? You support a nationally owned bank, which is going to be the banker of last resort for people in this country yeah. who can't get bank accounts any- anywhere else. But what I mean, what, I suppose what they would say is it's an issue of, it's a matter of law. So um, whether or not somebody should be able to access banking should be should be a matter of civil rights and law rather than policy. And it's this is a big difference now, I think, between like some parts of the left and others. I think as a civil right, that should be tried in law. Mm. Lots of people, liberals, think, no, well, it's, you know, th- these should be very flexible and one policy can apply here and another policy can apply there. So what Farage would say is, well, it should be illegal to debank people mm. below a certain threshold, right? That's what he would say. But like you say, once you get into that terrain, well, okay, if we're going to talk about the law as a constraint on the free market, okay, let's have capital control. You can you yeah. can argue for anything, frankly. Yeah. Do, do you think that do you think they've always lived with those inconsistencies? I mean, the right, the sort of Thatcherite right, or is it sort of becoming more pronounced because now they've got more exposure? You know, there yeah. the inconsistencies are perhaps in the spotlight more, or was it always there? There are two sets of inconsistencies that I think are important here, one of which is inherent to the neoliberal movement and the other of which stems from the necessary alliance between neoliberals and kind of far-right like extremists, basically. Um, and the first inconsistency is the inconsistency within neoliberal thought, which says that um, this is an ideology based on kind of the need to promote human freedom um, that accepts that we are all kind of equal individuals playing this free market game. Um, and the job of a kind of good politician is to set up the rules of that game so that they are fair, so that, you know, as a society, we we think basically that they're fair and such that they prop up the kind of norms and rules of economics. So we have to have a legal system basically that kind of supports the functioning of, of the economy and make sure that everyone knows how to play the free market game fairly, right? Um, so that's the kind of neoliberal idea about what the state should do. Their critique of the way that the state is, is that it's taken over by vested interests, by bureaucrats who just make policy in the interests of, you know, um, their little uh, kingdom building or fiefdom building. And the problem with the neoliberal theory is that they never say, how do we get from here to there? How do we get from a state that's governed by vested interests to one that's governed by neutral, technocratic, enlightened bureaucrats? And of course, we don't. We just end up with the neoliberal agenda basically being used to um, push into power people who veil their naked desire for power with a spiel about the need for free markets and competition, whereas actually the free market game that they are going to construct and set up will be rigged in their favor. It's just that the only um, impetus, the only kind of um, the only power that they end up having is the power to crush people who interfere with the game from a particular perspective. So you see anti-competition law, for example, in the US being used to break up unions, but not being used to break break up kind of big firms and, and big banks and stuff. So there's this like, uh, this inherent um, problem at the heart of neoliberal ideology, which is its orientation towards the state, basically. It's like the state should be used, state policy and the legal system and law uh, should all be used to construct this fair, good, free market economic game. And the fact of life under capitalism, which has never been a pure free market system, it's always been a system of kind of private government by capital. And that private government is exercised both within the firm and over the state as a whole. 
Um, and there's this kind of what, you know, some theorists have called this like double truth, what Hayek called actually the double truth at the heart of neoliberal philosophy, which is tell everyone that we want less state intervention and kind of, you know, a cutting of red tape and a removal of the state to make space for the free market. And the actual neoliberal goal, which is creating this apparatus from within the state that supports the functioning of the free market under the influence of capitalists who are actually rigging that game in their favor. So this whole like big state, small state thing, again, is that that's the massive biggest lie at the heart of neoliberalism. And then there's the other thing that even if you didn't have all of that, even if you just accepted the fact that neoliberals do think there should be this big state, small state, free markets versus state intervention dichotomy, there's this problem that's come with their from their alliance with the far right, which is, as I've said, basically composed of people who consider themselves to be losers or on the verge of losing from the free market economic game and want protections put in place against people who they consider to be outsiders to preserve what remains of the spoils of that game for their group. So you have basically the alliance between neoliberals who set up an economy in which people were permanently divided into winners and losers with people who have ended up losing and now think that we basically need to kind of shit on immigrants and like, you know, put women in their place in order to preserve their special status within a game where they feel like losers. And that creates obvious sources of conflict, which we saw most clearly with, you know, the the divide between Johnson's Brexiteers and the kind of extreme... Um, neoliberal libertarian wing of the Conservative Party that descends from kind of Thatcher. I think David Graeber called it the iron law of liberalism. Yeah. Which is like when government tries to reduce need for government in this ham-fisted way of just like salami slicing public budgets and so on, they increase the need for government. Um, that's not to say that you, you know, some things maybe couldn't be done by the government. Mm. Of course, of course, you can have that conversation and you focus on the things that are really important. So, for instance, a pacifist would say we could spend less on yeah. arms spending, for instance. Uh, but I, I think his insight is really interesting. And it's, it's fascinating what you say about that being a fundamental inconsistency and contradiction within neoliberalism about here what you think, here are your values, here's where you want to get, and A can never lead to mm. B. It's like that meme. There's a video of like Sean Dyche and uh, Pep Guardiola. Have you seen this? No. And you've got Sean Dyche who's going... Keep the ball out of that end, that end. Put put it in the goal on that end. <laughs> and then you've got Pep Guardiola saying, we have the inverted right back, we play the false nine, we bring him in. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. So, like, so you've got two reads on football, right? One is like very basic yeah. bre Brexit football. And then there's like, you know, sexy total football Pep style. And like neoliberals love to say, cut the state, free yeah. markets, free people, free government, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, like you, you end up in the most arcane. We'll do this subsidy yeah, exactly. here and we'll cut this here and we'll create this new quango and this new agency and we'll have this and we'll lose money here, but we'll tax those guys. Like going back to what I said earlier on with the, this housing policy from Michael Gove, they'll be allowed to pollute more, but we'll have this change here and we'll give more money here and taxpayer money can go to this private company here. And even though it's probably only they still have shareholder dividends, and if they don't pay the dividends, we'll give them money to pay the dividends. And you know, fuck yeah, yeah. hell. Just bring water into public ownership <laughs> and bring and build some social housing. Yeah. Like, but of how course, hard like, is it? This this whole system and the most ingenious thing about this, right, is that every new piece of regulation creates opportunities for profit making. Yeah, because there's regulatory arbitrage. You can like you know use the gaps in existing regulation to make sure that you're winning against your competitors. Because I don't know, you're like using profit shifting or like other forms of 
regulatory arbitrage, which basically just means exploiting differences between laws or gaps in regulation to like create opportunities for profit. You saw this with the financial crisis, right? Like there was this explosion in regulation of the finance sector um, in some ways, especially at the international level going up to the crisis of 2008. And we're talking about how assets were classified and categorized and how banks were supposed to value those assets um, and the way that they were supposed to kind of assess risk. And actually that ended up creating opportunities for profit making. Um, It, for example, incentivized the the parceling up of all these different um, mortgages into these mortgage-backed securities that looked really safe because they were supposedly diversified, um, but which actually obviously had, you know, within that process, there was this constant risk of kind of massive catastrophic meltdown. Um, So that process of setting regulation ended up creating opportunities for profit-making. That also caused the financial crisis. And this is always the case. Like whenever you get a new law, there are ways of exploiting the existence of that law to make money. Um, And private interests will always do that. It's the same with as well with like, um, you know, carbon carbon credits. The ways that those were set actually ended up making money at the European level for for some companies when they were able to sell those. So regulation creates opportunities for for profit making. So Labour keeps saying that they'll smash the glass ceiling when they're in government. They'll smash the glass ceiling. What does that mean? Well, it depends on whether or not you are a Marxist or um, a liberal. To me, smashing the class ceiling means dissolving the distinction between the people who own the means of production and those who are forced to work for a living on pain of destitution by socializing the ownership of and control and governance of all of the assets that we need to produce the things that we need to survive. It means dissolving the very existence of class as mediated by ownership, basically. To a liberal, it means making sure that the people who start life as losers maybe get to be winners for a few minutes at some point in their lives. So, you know, the whole liberal imaginary is about making sure that rather than actually dissolving the divide between, you know, workers and the owners of the means of production between capital and labor, um, it means making sure that there's more sortition amongst labor and maybe the capacity every now and again for some people within labor to get into the position of being capitalists. Um, But again, very rarely. So it's about, yeah, you know, social mobility or whatever. It's not about changing the structure of the system. There's always going to be winners. There's always going to be losers. And largely speaking, those winners and losers will be the same people generally pretty consistently throughout throughout history, although there will be periods of of change and of of shift. Um, And the liberal view is just to say that change should happen a little bit more frequently. People like us should be in charge. Exactly. Let's have social mobility so comprehensive kids like me and are the first of my family to go to university and I'll not stop tweeting about it. Let's have more people like me in charge. You know, we did a great interview with Dan Evans and he has a brilliant critique of social mobility um, as really a sort of justifying veneer for a dysfunctional economic, social and political system, yeah. which also, by the way, increasingly can't even produce any growth or improvements yeah. to living standards. And like the veneer on that is, sure, We've had zero growth 15 years, living standards are falling, but I'm the first person in my family to be invested. <laughs> what the hell are you talking yeah. about? I think this actually comes back to the point that I made at the very start of this interview, right? About the difference between winners and losers and people who make the rules, right? Like the the conservative view is just that like the winners are the winners and the losers are the losers. And that's fair because that's based on competition and competition is its own 
process of fairness. For those on the left, it's like, well, we should make sure that if people do lose, they're protected in some way and that actually they have more opportunities to become winners and that the winners pay a little bit more to make sure that society works a little bit better. Whereas the Marxist or the socialist view should be, there shouldn't be winners and losers and people to make that make the rules. It should be, we all make the rules together. It's a completely different way of organizing society. Grace, on that note, we'll leave it there. When's your book out for people who are perhaps coming to you for the first time? Though I find that very hard to believe. No, I mean, I'm well, sure I've been away for quite a yeah. while. I hope that there'll be people who are coming yeah, well, for well, me for the, the first yeah, time. That's the point of coming on tomorrow, I guess. When, um, when, was it, when is it coming out? The 7th of March, I think, next year. Yeah, so early March next year. And if people want to follow your work, where can they find you? They can find me at Grace Blakely. Blakely has two E's, E-L-E-Y, on Twitter, on Instagram, even on TikTok. Oh, wow, TikTok. And you write for Tribune, you've got a And I write for Tribune, yes. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. We're up against obscene wealth and influence in the media. And it's hard out there for independent platforms trying to do things differently. So if you can, please consider donating one hour of your wage per month or whatever you can afford so that we can bring you even more of the kinds of podcasts, videos and political analysis that you won't find anywhere else. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you.